Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today I am joined by friend of the show and co-host of the Worn Beast podcast, Emily. Hi. I like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved in tabletop RPGs? As a kid, I, I very much enjoyed um, RPG video games. And I played them all the time, and I remember... I also used to play pretend a lot as a kid where I would like try and like, uh, I guess it was role playing in itself where, you know, you, you pretend your characters and do that. And I remember my mom told me, like, there's a game you can play where you do that and there's, it can go on for months and you write your own, you do your own stories and like characters can like make alliances and, and backstab each other as players, which doesn't really happen that much in D&D, but that's how she described it, because she never really played it, but she described it to me, and I, I became, I need to play this game. And it took me years from that point on to actually get games running. I remember uh, I kept trying to find DMs like to, to, to play um, the game with, and as soon as someone mentioned that they could be a DM, I was like, we should play it right now. Like... <laughs> I was very eager to start playing the game and how I got into GMing was that there weren't like, I, I, I couldn't find that steady DM to play with. So I became a DM so I could keep playing the game. Do you remember your first character? Uh, yes, I do. And this was a very much a case of, um, of someone who could GM randomly putting a game together because I asked them to, and it was like that night kind of thing. And he, um, I think we were playing AD and D, but again, I didn't know very much about the game then. So I, I barely grasped a lot of the rules and we wrote our character sheets on like blank paper and he, we didn't have any spells handy. So he actually used, um, the Baldur's Gate two manual to get the spells and then find out what they did and how much damage and all that, because Baldur's Gate 2 is essentially just AD&D video game. And I made a very basic character who was a fighter. And I think his name was Fighter. <laughs> and he was based off of the 8-bit uh, theater character Fighter. Because, again, I was very young, and I didn't have... um. Uh, we were doing a very like comedic game, so I I figured I would just base my character off of someone I already knew who was comedic. Are you familiar with Ape Theater at all? Uh, I believe so. Is that the one where it's uh, they use the Final Fantasy sprites? Yeah, yeah. To do like so, yeah. Um, I just made the character fighter who's essentially a big dumb fighter. And that was my first ever character. He did not last long. It was a very short, um session that i have no idea how, how how um well we abided by the rules and i think we just like we saved an orc princess from uh a young dragon and that was the end of it <laughs> do you remember exactly how old you were i think i would have been in middle school so possibly 14 Maybe maybe fifteen, no not no fifteen was grade ten. So I've been like thirteen or fourteen, I think. And this was in a group, or was it just you and the GM? Um, it was a group of friends all hanging out at someone's house, and I was and just being like, 
hey, let's do a D a D and D game. I, mostly from my pestering. <laughs> Did you form into a cohesive party that would meet regularly after that, or mm-hmm. was it just one-offs from time to time? It was even. It was less frequent than even that, unfortunately. We, I think he lent me uh, a 3.5 player's handbook that I got to read for a few days. And then I, I think we did one session of a game where, again, I think I just made a fighter. That was very basic, but not just it wasn't just fighter again. And I, I think we got like half a session, like half an adventure done, and then never. And I, I don't think it was, again until high school that I played another uh, random game that didn't have any books involved because, again, it was just me pestering someone who, who said they were a DM to DM for us. And I made a cleric at that in that game. But that was, like, years apart. And it wasn't until 4th Edition came out that a co-worker, he bought all the books and he insisted that a bunch of us play D&D and I was obviously very for that. And we played a few sessions with that. It was all, it was all everybody from a bunch of people from the from the job I had working at a fast food place, and uh, that and fourth edition seemed very accessible to me. So I was like, "Hey, I could DM this," and that's when I started DMing. And that was like uh, maybe my twenties. And did you start off with a campaign out of the book? Or did you start creating your own world? I think the first thing I did was the dungeon fourth edition gives you in a DM, in a, um, in a DM guide. It's like a a kobold keep. It's not it's not keep on a shadowfell. It's like a very small kobold keep. Where you fight a white dragon at the end of it. And I I took that and I think I I adjusted it a bit, but I it definitely wasn't too unique. And it it wasn't um, until I started playing Pathfinder that I tried to make my own campaign world. Uh, started my own setting. And what was it that gave you the inspiration to create that setting? I, I wanted to make an urban setting for D&D, and I didn't have a lot of access. I mean, I guess I could have just taken taken water deep. And adjusted that, but I I didn't have a lot of the extra books, so I just was like, I want to make an urban setting, and I want I made my own world because I wanted monster races to be viable choices for players to pick. In in most settings, you wouldn't want a knoll hanging out with a bunch of um, humans, elves, and dwarves, but I wanted that to be an option. So I made a setting where um, monster races were not. They weren't, like, the chaotic evil you see next to them in the monster manual is inaccurate. That's more or less society's interpretation of them, and they were kind of um, a disenfranchised races, but they were very much just as varied as every other race in normal D&D. Did you have an end point in mind when you started creating? I, I'm very bad at planning things. I am a very much... Uh, I got a basic setup, like hook for this adventure, and then everything's improv. So between sessions, what would you do? <laughs> I 
as a GM, like the um, the worst thing of, about being a, the worst thing I'm at, I am the thing I'm worst at. <laughs> sorry, um, in terms of GMing is preparing. I, I, I every time I think like this week I'm going to set up a a thing for my players to do and plan ahead and stuff. But generally, I just have an idea for what I want to do that session, and then I just run into it. Did the players know this? The players, um, yeah, they, they do tend to, t- I, I tell them, like, <laughs> like again, like, I, I have one player that's uh, in one of my games, an online game, who's also a GM, and we talk a lot about GMing with each other, and I always tell him that I'm going to prepare, and then I show up at the session and be like, okay, I don't really have anything prepared, but let's do it. So I'm I'm making myself sound like a pretty bad GM right now, but I think I'm actually pretty good at improvising situations. Sometimes the players, like, they seem to not, like, the other players who I don't talk to as much seem to mind my sessions, so. Well, in your opinion, what do you think makes a good GM? A good GM is someone who can craft a, a story in their head and then be able to realize it at the table. Like, being able to, like, work off their players and give them um, interesting NPC interactions and react to how players... Like, if, if a player throws them... Uh, a unique thing they want to do in the game that isn't like covered in the rules, being able to adapt that and play off the players is very important. And were you able to do that as a GM? Um, I'm very like, I, I'm very much like the yes. It says in the DMs guide, like um, always say yes, which I guess is from improv. And yeah, I try to, I, I don't give my players like, free reign to do absolutely anything they want, but I'll try to adapt the ideas they have and very rarely will tell a player no. I mean, between you improvising on the fly and your characters enjoying the game, why don't you think you're a good GM? Um, I'm not very good at preparing setting sessions. I, I, I do want to improve that because I think improvisation is very important. But having the back ba- backbone to improvise off of is equally as important. I, I think if, if I even just kind of like wrote out these characters and prepared the world a little bit better, like maybe not prepare like this is what this character is going to do. This is what um, this quest line entails exactly, but more just set up uh, characters and motivations and then just play off them that way. But I, I definitely need to be better at preparing for games. <laughs> Actually, I'm doing another game right now that um, I'm just playing the Curse of Strahd game with a few new players who've never played before. And that's taken off a lot of that pressure. And it's been really fun to play. So I think there's there's some merit to like the pre-established adventures. I know a lot of 
a lot of DMs that I personally interact with that kind of like scoff at them and, and think like you should make your own games. But being able to have this reference document that's like a book about everything to do with the adventure, it can it can make improvising even easier because you have that backbone to work off of. Because it lets you focus on the game and not trying to come up with a backstory on the fly. Exactly. Which I guess most DMs will write that stuff themselves, which I don't do. So having to improvise NPCs on the fly, what is your method for that? I generally try to think of a character trait they have and a purpose for that NPC to the players. So like for instance, one of my players was in a in one of in one of the cities and was like I need to find a black market dealer. So I was like okay, um here's this werat guy with kind of in rags and I gave him this like very enter- this um very skeevy voice that sounds very strange and uh, um he he instantly like loved the the character and when they moved to a different town he even like recruited this guy to be his like personal black market dealer for his um casino that he was starting and they're kind of by online game they're kind of a kind of a villain campaign where they're trying to make their own gang and uh yeah skajib was the name of this rat folk and they very much uh I, I think just giving him that personality tick of this strange way of speaking uh, kind of instantly endeared him to the players. And how did you come up with the name for Kajib? Kajib? I just, I, I come up with a lot of names just like on the fly. Just like think of, I kind of just repeat names in my head until I find one that sounds good at least to me, and then I just say it out loud. And, and sometimes players have called me out on like, that's a character from something. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because <laughs> I, again, I just kind of rack my brain, um, just putting syllables together and making tr- trying to make it sound like, like Skajib, I think, sounds like a dude who's like in a back alley selling you random magical things. <laughs> What's the worst name you've come up with on the fly? Um, the worst name I came up with was for a, a company that my that the players ended up loving, but um, I, I they were attacking this like restaurant and they they wanted to get to the the supplies of the restaurant that were being shipped there before uh and kind of like take over those supplies and deliver themselves as a way in. And it was a cheese like factory. And I just kind of said like umbral cheese factory, which sounds way too menacing for like this random cheese factory. And I was like, this is terrible, but my players think it's hilarious and they they're cool with it. But I I don't think it was one of my better names. I mean, the moon is made out of cheese. <laughs> That's true, and you would know as you rule the moon. I do have inside sources. <laughs> Can we meet Kajib? Kajib? 
Ah, uh, okay. Hello. I am Skizheeb. Master, what can Skizheeb do for you? <laughs> yes. So you started off as a black market merchant for this group of adventurers? Mm, yes, Master. Mida was, was very friendly and profitable to Skizheeb and offered him a place of employment in the capital of Garrystone. Very illustrious city. Okay, be straight with me. Are you planning on eventually turning on the adventurers? Skishib would think nothing of that. Skishib lives to serve and to make gold. If perhaps there is a better offer. However, so, Emily, is this a character just for an online game? Yeah, I mean, I I might use him again sometime, because he is kind of fun to play. And uh, one vocal quirk he has that kind of, like, I didn't really want to do there, but he, he, he will often sound like he's done a sentence, and then the, the players will start talking, and he'll just randomly say another word, add it onto it. And um, a vocal inflection that isn't really anything. Just like, yes. That kind of deal. So they don't get the benefit of (laughs) what? When I hear that voice, I imagine you are kind of Mr. Burnsing your fingers. Oh, absolutely. Hunching your shoulders up. (laughs) I, I, I often will gesticulate. And we don't use um, cameras, so they don't get to enjoy that, but it helps me get into character. I mean, I think everybody can just hear that (laughs) voice. (laughs) Thank you. I try. Do you do voices for each NPC, or just certain ones? I try to give every NPC some kind of voice. I, I think it's debatable how successful I am or how often I will reuse voices for characters like you just met. Like, I just talked to this guard who sounds exactly like this diplomat I'm now talking to. But um, I, I try because I think it's I think it's one of the most fun things about role playing. And I, I know some people hate it that when people do voices, but it's just. My favorite my favorite part of of playing these games is getting to act as these characters and write these stories with them. And I think um, doing a voice helps with that. I'm actually really bad at making voices for my own characters more so than NPC. Cause NPCs I'm willing to just kind of go all the way out there with a character. I'm like, I'm going to be up to playing this guy constantly. Um, what kind of voice can I keep up? And often I end up just using my own voice. <laughs> Do you ever create NPCs starting with the voice? Uh, I mean... Some just, well, I would say that sometimes the voice is the, is the main... Like, I, I didn't start... Like, Skajib, I literally just came up with in a couple seconds. So, I guess the voice was kind of what made him a character. Like I, I did the voice and that kind of what informed everything about his character. While um 
and like his name kind of helped inform the voice, I guess. So I guess the first thing I come up with an NPC that's random is usually the name. And then I'll kind of um, advance that with the voice, which will actually give them like what kind of character they are. But you've never just done a voice randomly and thought, ooh, how can I work that in? Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of like uh, have this gravelly voice that I, 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 I often sing um, What a Wonderful World with that I kind of gave to an orc that I had as a player, a character. So I guess I, I, I wanted to make an orc character just to give him this like soft, soothing voice. That he can... I, I should have made a bard, really, who just sang um, songs from the artist who does What a Wonderful World who I can't think of right now. <laughs> Louis Armstrong? That's it, Louis Armstrong. So I assume this orc was a nanny? A nanny? Go to sleep, little child. <laughs> this orc, um, he was actually, uh, again, trying to, like, um throw things on its head because he wasn't he wasn't a half orc by the way he wasn't orc although we were using the rules for half orc but um i wanted to make the most hero hero who was like like he's very much the folk hero like his backstory was that and he he lived in a small village that gets um attacked by a green dragon and this paladin um and his party go to rescue the this this village but at one point the paladin is about to be killed by the green dragon. So this, this orc kid picks up this, his magic shield that the paladin dropped and gets in front of him and deflects the breath weapon. And then the paladin's able to win and he gives the kid the shield. And then the kid's like, I'm going to be a hero like this guy who saved our town. And he, he becomes like a typical folk hero where he's just willing to help anyone he, he wasn't a paladin, he was a fighter, but he acted a lot like a paladin, where he's just like, I'll save anybody, um, anyone who needs, like, a hero, like, I'll be there for them, kind of thing. Like, he would often take jobs without payment. Um, although he was, like, I guess, like, less... I mean, not every paladin's different. I don't want to put paladins in a box, but he was less judgmental than the typical paladin, I guess, where he's like, that's evil, so I'm gonna do it. He was kind of just more like... Like, there's a part where he's working with, like, these two um uh these two factions that are both kind of bad but as soon as one faction has the other guy like chained up to a wall and he's going to kill him he just saves them like he it, even though it's going to screw up the deal he has with the other dude because he just can't stand seeing like anyone being hurt like that and so uh, he had this deep gravelly orc voice but he was a hero. Worked for Batman. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but Batman isn't a cuddly hero. Like, this guy was a cuddly dude. He, 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 um, they, they worked with this, uh, mercenary group for a while. And like, one of the things I would try to do with him is that he would like be drinking with everybody and singing songs. And I'd like real charisma checks to see how much people liked me. They tried to make him a leader. He, I, he was, it's a fifth edition fighter, but I tried to build base him off of, a. Uh, the Warlord class in 4th edition. Kind of a leader fighter. And how did you do that? Well, I made a Battlemaster, and I just, like, took, like... He he didn't... Like, I put all my points in Constitution. 
he he was strong, like he had sixteen strength, but he had twenty con, and like his his main focus in battle was to support the other characters, despite being this like fighter. So like I took like I took goading attack, I took um, maneuvering attack, um, I did take parry and repost as like defensive things. So I didn't want to make him a tank as well. But like yeah, I, I think they they kind of built the Battlemaster fighter as like here if you want to play a warlord, here's everything you need within this fighter, which is it's also great for just an outright offensive fighter. But so how long have you been playing this ongoing campaign? Um, which one, the one that I'm running or the one that I'm playing in? Ah, <laughs> uh, the one you've been running. The one I've been running. I've been playing it for like. The, the 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 Curse of Strahd game I just started. It's only been like a couple months, and we took a month off because the holidays. And but the one that's online with my f- online friends has been uh must have been like must be like a year, a year or two, I think. How long do sessions usually last? Recently, they've been kind of shorter because of my scheduling. Because one thing is, I play, I'm in like four different games a week. So I, I get a little burnt out. So I, I needed to kind of shorten one of my games. And that's ended up being my own game. Probably because it, it takes the most out of me since it's the one that I, that's in my own homebrew setting and that I have to improvise a lot for. Um, but like generally, like two to three hours for that one. And then for my other ones, like, Again, like it's not much shorter. Like I think like four hours is what I go for in like the Christmas Strahd game. Regardless of your schedule now, if you could go longer, would you want to? If if I could fit it in my schedule, I'd be playing uh D every week every day of the week. And um yeah, I mean if I could play the perfect game that I wanted to, I, I would love like like six hour sessions, but I just don't think I have it in me. And I, 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 this isn't really based off the question you asked, but one thing I really like about the Curse of Strahd game that I'm doing is that all the players are new, like they have never fully played before, and they just have this like this wonderment of the game that is like really endearing and has made that game really fun to play. Because they just like think everything's so cool, and like every little thing that happens gets them excited. Like um, they hadn't they hadn't uh, had a fight for a while in one of the sessions. Um, if you're familiar with Curse of Straw game, it's like when they're first getting into Barovia. There's a lot of like walking to Barovia. I guess you could make that shorter if you wanted to. Um, but they get to the village of Barovia and they go through like a lot of talking with people there, and then they get to the first combat encounter. And I kind of like what happened. The first combat encounter in that game is typically against this um, vampire spawn. That's this uh, priest's son. And when the priest started to like go towards, oh, maybe you just have to kill my son to free him. They like literally cheered. Like they're like, yeah, woo! Like they they got they were like whooping and like hollering because they were so excited for combat. And it's just, it's it's helped. Um, I think when. I wasn't losing passion or anything, but it, it's made me very passionate about uh, playing the game to see this, like, wonderment at it. After a while, you just start to take it for granted. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of the people I've been playing with, besides them, are, like, experienced players. 
It's cool to see newbies again. Now you said your mother was the one that originally got you into D&D, but she never played. Yeah. Have you ever tried to get her to play a game? <laughs> um, I haven't. I, I, I tried to get her to play um, one of the D&D board games. Uh, actually, the the Ravenloft one. I really like... I really like vampire, like classic vampire stuff, like Castlevania and stuff like that. So um, that that's I bought Ravenloft, and then I, as soon as Curse of Strahd came out, I needed to get it. But yeah, I tried to get her to play Ravenloft, which is a very bare bones fourth edition. But like, even that just sounded too complicated to her. She's she's wonderful, and um, she she in, she'll um, indulge my nerdiness a lot. But to actually get her to play things is is not going to happen. <laughs> going back to the game that you're GMing, do you have any ceiling for how strong the characters can get within that world? The world, my um, homebrew world, is kind of um, it's very magitech. There's a lot of magic in uh, the setting. Um. I I guess just to to um, get into it a little bit, and I, I feel a little narcissistic talking about my setting, but um, it's it's uh, a big country that was kind of like where the creation myth of the country is that dragons made it, and they kind of uh, shaped the the land to fit their needs. So even though it's like relatively a small country, there's like a big desert. There's a big like area that's always winter. There's a big swamp. There's a big forest. It's all the different dragon habitats, like mountain ranges. And the dragons kind of infuse the setting with magic. So there's a lot of magic in my setting. But it's also the way I curb the characters getting too powerful, though, is that magic is also very, um, what's the word for it? Uh, legislated i guess where like you have to have a permit to be a wizard essentially and if you don't then you're an illegal magic user and you get hunted down by the government so while there's a lot of magic for them to like find uh they can't necessarily go hog wild with it without getting in trouble so yeah, I mean, like I, I one of my, I, I very early on gave them magic items, like uh, the one character who's the kind of the leader of the gang. Uh, his name's Miner because he he's a miner. <laughs> That's his whole like backstory. Is um, they gave him like a ring of jumping very early, and he's like, "You're just gonna give that to me?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I mean, I the way I see it, I just have to build my encounters to match their level of power." So they're going to get harder things the more like magic items they get. And what about the power level of the gang that they are founders of? Um, it's decently powerful to start off with because the 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 beginning of this game was kind of like a Suicide Squad thing where they got they got um they're all prisoners and the government's like we're going to give you a chance to like win win your freedom by becoming like our black ops agents. But they've like they've been really good for the gov. They, they've been they've been completing all their missions really well, and they in fact had an opportunity to kind of get out of the contract with the government. And he instead he like sided with them, and that gave them a lot of like brownie points. So they've been given this building in like the second to richest part of the city 
that's going to be a casino for them. And then they just did um, a quest line where they took over a smuggling route from another gang that they're um, kind of battling right now that part of the smuggling route was a slave trade. And they say they rescued a lot of these slaves who um, they were orcs. And in my setting, orcs have like a very uh, strong sense of like honor and um, duty to like the kind of like their tribe and all that. And because he saved this guy's tribe, the chieftain was like, okay, we're your guys now. So they gained like a, a, a good amount of um, flunkies in that, in that part. But they are just like basic orcs. So they don't have like too much power yet, but they've got a good like foundation for a gang. What if they started trying to take over the city they're in? Um, if they tried to take over the underbelly of a city, like the without trying to actually like take down the government, they I will let them do that. They're gonna have to like work for it for a while, but I would be I mean that's what they're in. Very much so that the game took the direction it's in right now, the the whole gangs and everything thing is because my player that's what my players said his goal was he's like i want to make a casino and that so i'm just i try to tailor make my games for the players because that's who i'm doing the game for it's not for me it, it, it is for me a little bit but they're the ones who are having to like interact with this world so i i'm like okay well that's where i'm gonna write the quest about is you doing this thing so that's how where he wanted to go that direction dick absolutely could that would be like an end game level thing but the government themselves, uh, I don't think they could take them down. Not the way they're at. Because one of the things that the government had, they had implanted these crystals in the back of their necks that will like shock them to death if they step out of line. <laughs> so if they can figure out a way to get rid of those, they might have a chance. But right now, not so much. <laughs> so no storyline where one of them runs for mayor? I mean, that might work if they tried to take it over politically without... But even then, like if the if the prime minister of the... Well, who's, like, the leader of this um, government is a prime minister. If he got wise to, like, them being a threat, then he'd probably just kill them. So, I again, that, that might sound a little bit too railroady, I guess, but I wanted to give them some limits when they first started the game because I'm like, you guys are a bunch of bad guys. There has to be a reason why you're working together. And that first was, you have to, or you'll get killed. So, but, um, I mentioned earlier that they, they kind of, like, did something that showed their loyalty to the government. And, um, that was, they had an opportunity to get rid of their crystals, essentially, where they found this ship that was, um, manufactured by the opposing country, that is um th- that country is more like technology based like the the main country they're in right now is all magic and then the country that they're opposed with is all technology and they're in a truce right now so that's how magitech happened but they're still not super friendly and the the technology guys made a ship that was like anti magic so that they'd be able to sneak into the country um there's cuz it's got magical wards around it and when they were on this ship, 
their crystals didn't work. They couldn't remove them yet, but they didn't work. And they could have, like, sailed the ship to, to this alternate country and gone on a whole quest line of getting rid of their crystals. And I was totally prepared for the game to go in that direction, and they didn't. They destroyed the ship, they did their quest, and they went back to the government, and that's why I rewarded them with this casino. What's the biggest curveball that you've been thrown as a GM during this game? Huh. <laughs> um... The biggest one was very early on, and I, sh- and, I sh- and I saw it coming, but I didn't handle it correctly. And it's my my biggest failure as a GM I've, I've ever had, and I and I still regret it to this day. But I mentioned that they have these crystals in their back of their necks that would shock them if they did anything that was like against what the government wanted them to do. And one of those things was they couldn't attack each other. And one of the players' backstory was that she... Um, her her she had a she had a son who was beaten to death in front of her, and so she's kind of a hard ass assassin lady. But one of her, but she would be triggered if she saw a, a child being hurt in any way. And I knew that, so I put a kid in the mansion because their first mission was to kill. Um a high-ranking politician that was in opposition to the prime minister. And they got into the guy's room, they murdered him, and then his kid walked in. So I t- I was like, this is going to like make drama because she doesn't like hurting kids, but everyone else in the team is going to want to kill this kid. Because one of their um one of their uh objectives was not being spotted. So I knew this was coming. And I should have prepared better for it. But one of the players breaks the kid's legs and she goes to shoot him. And I, I should have given her a chance to be able to do this, make her roll constitution or something. But I just knocked her out. And that was so unsatisfying for like everyone involved. And I wish I could take that back. And I don't know why I fucked it up so bad. Because like I said, I, I planned for it. Like I knew this was going to ha- probably happen. And I still messed up its execution. How has that informed how you prepare for scenarios like that in the future? <laughs> Just do better, really. I mean, maybe have... um. I didn't actually, I, I, again, like when I, I prepare in sense of that, I get a general idea what's going to happen. And I come up with a bunch of scenarios in my head that could happen, but I don't write them down. So I should write them down. And then when that happens, I'll have a reference to look at and be able to pick and choose the best one for that situation, which I mean, her knock getting knocked out was not the best one for that situation. And what would you say is the biggest curveball you have thrown to the players? The ship, I would say. The ship that that absolute that would have made them free. Like here's this thing that'll solve all your problems and I I'm still surprised that they didn't take it. But it's it was it was it was kind of fun that they didn't too. Oh, another curveball I threw at some players, actually, in a previous... We only ended up having one session, but I was trying to have um, another session in this world with um, 
with some other people. And they were playing a half-orc ranger and a, an Eladrin wizard. And they their first mission was to take out these orcs in this forest nearby that had kidnapped the, the local noble's son. And that's all they were told, is that they kidnapped this noble's son, and they had to go rescue him. So they go to this, um, and remember I said in my game, orcs aren't like necessarily evil. They go to this camp, and they, they ransack it, they kill a bunch of them, and then one of them spots this kind of uh, switch on the wall, like a hidden room, and they're like, oh boy, treasure. And they open up the switch, and it turns out it was a panic room with a ton of like the children and like non-combatants of the village of this hidden base just like cuddled in a corner like fearing for their lives and like one of the things that they killed a goblin before entering it that there was goblins at this camp too and it it's he said like I'm sorry when they were killing him and they didn't get it and then they open this thing and there's this like goblin wife there who's like screeches out in horror that her husband's been like murdered and they felt pretty bad after that and i i that was the intention to get them to think about um the morality of their mission and it turns out that the orcs had kidnapped this kid because the baron i'm not sure if that's what he was been a while was going to burn down the whole forest to kill to get rid of them so they needed a way to protect themselves If you had to make a wild guess at this point, how do you think your game that you're GMing is going to end? With all-out war between the opposing uh, country, with them trying to also make this gang. So, yeah, I'm not, that's not really an ending, though. It's so hard to determine an ending for the game. All I can think of is like new possibilities that could keep happening. Maybe they'll be satisfied with just finishing their gang and their casino. I don't know. It's hard to say. Endings are tough. I don't know how it'll end. <laughs> it's kind of a, a cop-out answer, but... Do you have a map of the world? I have a map for the country they're in, which is still very barren. I've got like the basic region set out, but I haven't written a lot of the towns. Um... I, that's another thing I have to improvise a lot because I don't write anything down is, is these extra towns I go to and everything in the town. That was another thing that I, I, I had to come up with was that um, one of my players wanted an exotic mount while they were in this desert town and I made Ankegs very common in the desert town and I, I came up with that there was this elf lady on the frontier who was trying to like train Ankegs to be mounts and um he had to do a session of trying to like tame one down enough to be his mount. And that was um, fun. But yeah, I, again, like I kind of made a basic foundation for my world and then I improvised within it. And I kind of want to start writing down like, okay, here's like the capital of the winter area. Here's its whole deal. Cause in the long run, it's going to make deeper and enri more enriching games. It, it, the problem I'm, I'm decent enough, but it's not going to last. I'm, 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 I've already done it where I've started contradicting myself because I don't remember what I said 
on an earlier game. So that's something I need to improve on. If you could have something that exists in your game world made, what would it be? Oh, man. I think, like, the the um, the city of Garristode, which is, like, the, the first thing I made when I made this um, campaign world, is this um, city that's almost the size of a province. It's, like, huge. Because I wanted to have this urban campaign all in a city, and I wanted to make the city, like, very big to accommodate that. But, like, a model of it, because it's got, like, four districts, and each district's um, kind of got a unique flavor to it. I like to think, and um, the plat there's a platinum palace at the top of it, and it kind of has this like um, rising kind of a conal thing to like the spire at the top of the city, and that'd be a really cool model set to just have Garristone. We're going to start wrapping up, but before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire. Pioneered by Bernal Pivot. What is your favorite word? I think one of your guests already said defenestration. That's a really good one. <laughs> uh, hmm, I can't just copy them, though. Like It's not copying when you're a GM. It's just borrowing. That's true. I actually thought of a word when I was listening to one of your previous episodes, and now I can't think of what it was. But so let's just go with... um. Uh, actually, precipitation is a really good word. It just it just has this like kind of pop to it in the middle of it that I like. Almost an onomatopoeia, yeah. To itself. I mean, I, I mean, precipitation is like kind of sounds so good to say. Actually, um, it um it it just means that things are like kind of wet in the air. So. It doesn't really have a sound to it, but I guess maybe if you said precipitation was the sound of like rain hitting the the ground, that would work. And then yeah, so it's kind of an onomatopoeia. What is your least favorite word? Hmm. I I mean like I like I don't get triggered by moist or um any of those other common words that people don't like. Uh <laughs> I don't like the word cilantro because I don't like seeing it in like the ingredients of something I want to eat and being like, I can't eat this now. <laughs> I'll <just> say that. <laughs> what turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Emotionally is what stuck out to that question to me. And I would say that one of my favorite themes in, uh, in media that I watch and enjoy is family and like love in that family like i ninja turtles um steven universe like uh avatar the last airbender um like i'm even kind of like getting a swell right now just talking about it that that theme will like instantly endear me to anything like um if you're familiar with the forgotten realms books uh there's one that's about this tiefling named farida who um, one of the aspects of her story is that she's a twin sister with another tiefling whose dad is like this dragonborn dude. And there's like, a lot of themes of family in that and like the, how they kind of are like these uncommon races supporting each other. 
and that just like it makes me like just so happy i i love family as a theme what turns you off really often character deaths like really dreary settings that are like just this like suffocating in their in their depression like i, I i've never watched the walking dead because i know it's gonna be like that or game of thrones because like it's just and i'm sure those those are good stories and they're great but for for other people but for me it's like i i i can't stand things that have no hope essentially that are just i and i even like some like grittier stories but when it's just like depression all the time i can't stand that what is your favorite curse word to hear from your players <laughs> i mean shit is a very like common one but it, it's very much that word you say when like everything's gone bad <laughs> like every, like i i got a really bad role or like something like um really spooky happened in the curse of Strahd game that's kind of like oh shit is like the it's like the it's the thing that people say when something just got real <laughs> or something went very bad what sound or noise do you love rainfall it's probably my favorite sound. Rainy Mood is a great website. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? I I hate um incessant beeping that alarms have. I hate like the scratching, like, like not even nails on a chalkboard, just like sounds that are like that though. I mean it's a very basic answer, but I hate that. <laughs> What game system would you like to attempt? Uh, right now, Shadowrun. It, 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 it's like Vampire, The Masquerade, and Shadowrun are like the two game systems that I keep wanting to play that like kind of like sway in which one I want to play more. The only interaction I've had with those systems is like Shadowrun Returns and Vampire, The Masquerade Bloodlines, but they just like, they seem like such cool um settings that like i and and they're very different like they're not i i, I don't know maybe shadow runs a d20 system but like i i i'm not sure and I'm, i could be totally wrong but i know like vampire is like you roll a ton of dice that you have as many dots you have in and just it, i've never played a non-d20 system and it'd be really fun to get into that and those settings appeal to me i i especially like that they're in modern day. I mean, like Shadow Runs in the future, but Vampire. It's like I like the idea that players have smartphones and can like do things with that. Um, it, it kind of like ruins like knowledge text and stuff like that. But it's also kind of like interesting and would be a challenge as a DM to do. What game system would you not like to attempt? I can't think of anything. I mean, like, I I mean I. I'm I'm down for trying anything almost once. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? I mean, I think what every DM wants to hear is just like that was amazing. That was a really good game. Like that was satisfying conclusion kind of thing. Like I, I um I don't want to hear 
oh shit, we got a TPK and that's the end of the game. That's like the the one I, I don't want that to happen is essentially it. But other than that, I just want the players to be have a satisfying experience. Would you lie about dice results specifically to avoid a TPK? I I have in the past. <laughs> so yeah, I mean not even just TPKs like player deaths. I I'm not a big fan of them. Uh I generally will try to like give um the players kind of like a negative um a permanent negative rather than kill them. Uh a a, a character death happened in um my online game that I've been running for a couple of years now where and it was such a stupid death too cuz he was just like he was trying to um, climb around a cavern to get to like this chest or this item or something that was on the other side and he just he was at he was a rogue he had such good athletics and acrobatics but he just couldn't get anything but ones and he fell to his death but it wasn't this creepy cave a bunch of mushrooms like cthulhu monsters like the like lovecraftian horrors and they they ended up taking his body and putting a new arm on him that's like made of like mushrooms and like fungal tissue and then he attacked the party with the boss and they were able to free him so he had still had a chance of dying if the party just decided to kill him that could have been a case but he didn't and now he's got this like fungal arm that is a benefit in that it can like stretch so he now he can do like attacks with reach with any melee weapon he has um i think he can even like even has like a range of 20 feet and that's cool, but it's also this weird fungal arm and I'm going to slowly make it like cause him to go insane because it's from like another dimension, but it hasn't really come into play quite yet. And for the last question, if you could create a character for your mother, what character would you create? (laughs) Oh man. I mean, for her to play? Hmm. Yes. I mean, I guess she'd just be like... <laughs> I, I could see her being like this... A, a, like, not a cleric, but because she's... she, she that, That's not her. But like some kind of support class that just like... Tries to like solve conflicts in the game like without violence because she's like so not that. And I, I could see it being like... Like it's it's kind of a stereotypical motherly thing, but she would be just be trying to like, like take care of everybody and try to like, um, become friends with the monsters rather than attack them because she's she's darling, um, and yeah, so I, I think I'd go with that. If I was going to make an NPC based off my mom, it would be like this hen mother at like the parties in that they would like have to come back to all the time. But my mom's like really awesome and loving and supportive, but she's also like, she doesn't, she doesn't take shit and she, she wouldn't give them any freebies either. (laughs) So it'd be kind of fun to have her. For a character she was playing, would you keep her human or give her a different race? Ah, that's a good question. I, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I guess I would keep her human. Human or dwarf? I, I could see her being like this, like, stout dwarf, like, sturdy lady. And I don't pick, I don't like, I don't typically like making dwarf characters, so that's, like, an interesting thing, actually, that I could see my mom being a dwarf. 
Well, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Where can the insiders find more from you? Well, you can catch me every week on War and Beast. Every Saturday, we um, come up with a new episode where we rewatch Beast Wars and talk about it and it, all its glory with its um, proto forms and energon and sparks, <laughs> as our theme song says. Mind me not in that order. And also, I'm an artist and I post my art on Tumblr at dangerchair.tumblr.com and on my Twitter. Uh, at this is emeralds and my instagram is where i put a lot of my sketches and you'll also get selfies of me which i probably aren't interested in but i also put sketches there and that's um this is emerald without an s make sure to head over to audioentropy.com to catch emily on the war and beast podcast you can also check out other podcasts like cosmic call pris and molly's movie night and let's place make sure to follow the show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, the best way to make your players doubt themselves is to repeat their actions back to them slowly. <laughs> <laughs>